This is Ken Forster, Executive Director of Momenta Partners and Momenta Ventures. Welcome to our Digital Leadership Podcast. In this series of conversations, we capture insights from the best and brightest minds in digital industry. They're executives, entrepreneurs, advisors, and other thought leaders. What they have in common is like our team at Momenta, they are deep industry practitioners. We hope you find these podcasts informative, and as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Good day, and welcome to episode 103 of our Digital Leadership Podcast, produced by, for, and about digital industry leaders. Today, I'm pleased to introduce Tony Payne, co-founder and CEO of Momenta Ventures portfolio company, HiByte, a company providing industrial data ops. For the past 20 years, Tony has immersed himself in industrial software development and strategy at Kepware, most recently serving as CEO, where he led the company through a successful exit to PTC in 2016. Tony has contributed to a variety of technical working groups, helping to shape the direction of standards used within the automation industry. As a strong advocate for STEM or science, technology, engineering, and manufacturing, he sits at the Dean's Advisory Council for the University of Maine's College of Engineering, where he also provides industry insight and evangelism related to technology education. Welcome, Tony. It's great to have you on our podcast. Thank you, Ken. Uh, that was a great introduction. It's a pleasure to join you today to talk about my industry background, as well as what I'm working on today as part of Highbyte. Excellent. Well, it's a uh, thank you for thanking me for the introduction. This this was obviously verbiage that had come from uh, from you, but well written and uh, and actually a great background. So let's start with your professional journey. Tell us a bit about your background and how it has informed your views of digital industry. Well, Ken, I'm going to go quite a ways back. Uh, from my early childhood, I've always been passionate about how technology works, um, specifically around the mix of software and hardware integration. You know, I, I'm, I'm young enough where I don't go back as far as vacuum tubes and punch cards, uh, but I do remember being quite satisfied with my first computer that had you know, about 64K of RAM, four megahertz processor, and just two five and a quarter inch floppy disk drives. Um, I remember when I later upgraded to a system with a 20 megabyte hard disk drive, I thought that was a game changer. Uh, that was during my middle school years. Um, and I knew right then and there that I wanted to go into a professional that would use drive would drive technology advancements with a focus on software. Um, that passion led me to pursue a degree in electrical engineering, uh, where I actually focused my attention on the overlap of computer hardware and software design, as I recognized that one would not be able to exist without the other. Um, when I fast forward to my recent years, um, industry has continued to evolve year over year at a very accelerated pace. You know, this year's technology outperforms what was available last year um, and at less cost. You know, the digital industry consisting of customers and vendors is continuously improving. Um, companies are becoming more agile and digesting a new way of doing things at faster rates than ever before. Um, software has been a critical component to this uh, because the, it gives you the ability to upgrade capabilities and give hardware platforms such as legacy distributed control systems, programmable logic controllers, and today's IoT appliances, a much longer life cycle. Um, I've actually enjoyed being part of this evolution. Oh, that's great. Well, so I may, I may date you a little bit, but I started with punch, paper, tape, and eight-inch uh, floppy drive. So, <laughs> <laughs> Never had an eight-inch. I, I can certainly relate, yeah. So you chose to focus on very early on the what I'll call non-sexy part of the uh, overall technology stack, but very critical space of connectivity software. What inspired you to do so? 
Yeah, that's interesting. So when you know when we started Kepware in the mid '90s, um, our focus was on creating essentially a Windows-based human-machine interface, an HMI product. Uh, but it was already at a time where it was a growing and crowded marketplace. Um, there were many new software entrants that also saw an opportunity to leverage the you know off-the-shelf PC, um, phase-out proprietary hardware and software-based HMI solutions of the past. Um, and like any company, we were, you know, we sought out how to differentiate ourselves uh, from the competition. And then that's kind of where I, you know, leaned back on my background, um, along with another early day colleague's experience. Um, it focused, you know, it allowed us to focus on sort of creating a large library of device drivers, focusing on that passion around software and hardware integration. Um, and what happened was eventually um, we caught the attention of some of our HMI competitors, uh, not who were threatened. Um, with our very basic um, HMI capabilities, um, but there was interest and excitement um, on how they might be able to leverage our large PLC-based drivers uh, within their own products. Um, and you know, we stepped back, we evaluated the opportunity, um, saw that it made sense for us, and began to pivot uh, by providing external access to these driver capabilities that we had created. Um, we had done that through, um, at the time, vendor-specific toolkits you know, initially based on Microsoft's dynamic data exchange technologies, uh, the two that come to mind uh, are Rockwell's Advanced DDE Toolkit um, and Wonderware's Fast DDE Toolkit. Um, what's interesting is during this time, another effort was brewing, right? Um, there were companies getting together and working on an open standard for device connectivity um, based on Microsoft's latest technology at the time, object linking and embedded technology, also known as Olay. Um, this was actually Olay for process control or what's become known as OPC. Um, and so, you know, OPC really opened up the door for us to focus on a particular niche that we were not only passionate about, but we were really great at. Um, and so we, we decided to transition our company's business model into one of more collaborating with partners um, rather than just competing in this, you know, crowded HMI space in, in isolation. Mm, that's funny. This is uh, this is all coming back. Uh, so I was probably the guy at Wonderware at the time uh, working. I, I was certainly on the fast EE, but I attended the initial OPC kickoff meeting by Microsoft way back then. I think it was 1994, uh, and representing Wonderware at that. So uh, yes, I, I fast EE I know well, and as well as OPC. It seems with you know the early traction there that the industry, however, has moved. Somewhat slowly in terms of truly linking IT and OT. Um, why do you think that is? Well, I would say some of those technologies that we just talked about, um, you know, DDE, OPC, um, they provided a way to share data between applications, um, regardless of the vendors who actually developed those applications or created the devices. Um, and and this occurred because you know industry got together um, and agreed on a standard application programming interface contract that could be leveraged by anyone. And so, you know, at the time, these technologies were heavily tied uh, to Microsoft. Um, first, there was the DDE stuff, and then there was the OPC stuff based on Olay. Uh, Microsoft continued to rebrand that technology. It went from Olay to the component object model, known as COM. Um, and, and these technologies were great for sharing data between applications on the same machine, you know, what we refer to as inner process communications. Uh, but it didn't take long for the market to demand that this technology work across various machines, so in a very much of a distributed manner. Uh, so on the on the DDE side, um, a technology called NetDDE was born, 
Um, and actually, it was an effort started out by your, your old company, Wonderware. Um, it, it actually was eventually included as part of the Microsoft operating system stack um, for people uh, in our industry to use. Um, for COM, Microsoft had an answer for that requirement. It was called distributed COM or DCOM. And what I would say is with remote capabilities, uh, obviously comes the need for a strong security model. Um, and as we all know, when security gets involved, it usually becomes complex. Uh, and the complexity wasn't just you know, for the vendors developing the applications, but it was for the customers who leverage the applications based on these technologies. Uh, and so when you need computers to be networked together, IT is going to get involved. Um, of course, the security model um, of these technologies, NetDD and DCOM, they really weren't on par with the security models deployed by you know, IT higher up in the enterprise. Um, I'd say it's definitely probably not the only issue, uh, but it definitely was a pain point, um, the setting up of DCOM, that was a notable point in history to where operations and IT staff really started, um, or as we like to joke, were actually forced to communicate more frequently. Um, I'd say that over time, IT has become much more involved in operations, uh, the control system networks, uh, and the ongoing maintenance to ensure that their organization is secure over time. And so I, I'd say that I'm personally glad to see that IT is having a much bigger voice today than it has in the past, because uh, it allows them to contribute to areas where they have much more experience and operations can benefit from. Mm. I remember doing my first Wonderware implementation. Uh, I was at Lockheed Missile and Space Control Systems Engineer, and uh, we were running on a beta version of uh, uh, Windows for Workgroups, which included the NetDD, you mentioned NetDD component. So you could have imagined at a, at a military defense contractor, the conversations I was having with the IT people about why I wanted to roll out some uh, uh, basically a peer-to-peer -peer network there. <laughs> and it was not fun, but it worked phenomenally well. And you were, you, were, you were relying on the same technology that Microsoft used to be able to allow people to play Microsoft uh, Hearts, the game Hearts uh, across yes, the network. Yes, true. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> or, or, or monitor printer settings, as I was reminded exactly. of it. So, so the, the acquisition of Capware by PTC created a bit of a panic in the OT industry. Uh, I know because we, we were out there talking with a lot of the companies, especially companies like GE and Cisco, you know, which started to look to hedge their connectivity software bets. You guys were and are ubiquitous. Um, and, and so I always thought it was a an interesting move by PTC to, you know, to acquire you guys. In fact, one of our companies um, at the time, uh, Plat1, we actually uh, sold, of course, to SAP. That's now Leonardo. But a part, a large portion of the valuation in that was because of the software libraries that were underneath it. And uh, and I can say uh, one of our companies now, Litmus Automation, also uh, puts a lot of energy around the, uh, the the driver library. They have the edge, if you will, right? Uh, for this area being so critical, it just seems kind of strange. There still are not more general industry options in this. Why do you think that is? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, connectivity is critical, um, and and the, and the options really, you know, are, are pretty sparse. You know, if I go back in time, you know, I, I really believe that many companies, you know, thought that the vendors who produced hardware, you know, the DCSs, the PLCs, CNCs, and and so on, uh, would be the best company to actually develop a connectivity solution for their own products. Um, in fact. Um, I sometimes joke with the uh, past president of the OPC Foundation that uh, you know they never thought uh, that they would actually enable what is referred to as a new cottage industry uh, for software companies to exist and thrive around data and device connectivity. 
Um, the belief was that if industry came together um, and agreed on sort of this standard contract for sharing data between applications and devices, then software application vendors would implement to the standard and device manufacturers would actually create the one and only OPC server uh, for their product and all interoperability problems would just go away. Um, and what I would say is, you know, in fact, you know, many device managers, manufacturers actually did create their own OPC solutions. Um, but, you know, we never saw that as a barrier at Kepware. Uh, we actually believe two things that, you know, customers would leverage devices from multiple vendors. And the second thing was that not all OPC implementations, regardless of them being a standard, are created equal. And so us and a couple other um, what I would call OPC only vendors, you know, vendor agnostic, if you will, took hold of the market and became the de facto standard for obtaining device data consistently, consistently within you know an operations environment, um, regardless of the devices that were being connected to. Um, what I would say is before we knew it, um, leading hardware manufacturers started endorsing our solution. Um, they wanted to resell it, white label it, um, and no longer you know progress their own third-party connectivity initiatives. So, you know, as you mentioned earlier, device connectivity is not sexy, but it's critical. And without it, applications like HMIs and Storians, alarm management systems, and even today's IoT dashboards um, would provide limited value to their users. Um, even so, the competition um, in the vendor agnostic connectivity business was really limited to a few players. Mm. And and again, you know, uh, lots of credit to PTC. And uh, at the time, uh, uh, Ben Tao, who is now our our head for uh, private equity and and M and A um, within Momenta, was head of Corp Dev there. So I, I I told him I said that was one of the best acquisitions you guys ever made outside ThingWorks, of course, which <laughs> was also one of our companies, but pretty close. So look, all of this has culminated in your founding of Highbyte, a name I love by the way, um, which you describe as industrial data ops. So what problem are you trying to solve and why? Yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate that you like the name. I mean, we uh, it, it took us a little while to kind of come up with something creative that we thought would resonate with what we wanted to do and, and, and we could grow into, continue to grow into. But uh, I'd say, you know, uh, technologies like OPC, um, you know, have done a great job of solving the data interoperability problem. You know, that is how do we generalize device connectivity, collect data, um, and then share the results with various applications. Uh, this has worked really well, um, but it makes one big assumption. Um, and that's that the data, once available in the application, actually makes sense to the user. And so for a simple example, I mean, if I pull a value of 75 from a device, share it with an application, and the user sees that value of 75 on the screen, what does it really mean? You know, is it a temperature? Um, is, it, is it a utilization rate? Is it a level in a tank? Um, does it have units of measure? Um, and then is the value actually acceptable? Is the, you know, the value of 75 within the appropriate operating range for the particular parameter that it belongs to? And so here, the data really lacks you know, context in this sort of you know, legacy format. Um, the problem you know, is further compounded uh, when units of measure for a particular piece of data differs by application or site. Uh, so for instance, you know, something as simple as temperatures where you know, the US plants have temperatures in Fahrenheit, we just will never change and conform to the rest of the world, I guess. Um, whereas everybody else in the world uses Celsius. And so you know, when I look across you know, all my plants, 
you know, is my data consistent? You know, has it been correlated to a steroid measure? Uh, and this is just what I would call the basics around data interoperability um, across multiple sites. I'd say that, you know, more advanced is being able to monitor and analyze assets, processes, systems, other complex widgets that are made up of multiple data points, you know, maybe hundreds if not thousands of data points in some cases. And so here the end user application has to actually model one of those things and wire up all the data points. And you know, that works okay if you're only using one application, but if I have a mix of operational tools like HMIs and historians, and now newer IT, IoT type tools like analytics and machine learning, I'd have to model the same thing multiple times in all my applications. You know, as every vendor of all these applications have their own way of creating models for consumption. And so, you know, I'd say that's where we enter data ops, you know, a new layer uh, in the industrial technology stack that abstracts away modeling, you know, the piecing together of data points into a sophisticated model that's standard, adds the context that I mentioned, and correlates the data across the entire enterprise. And so, it, you know, from a maintainability perspective, you know, a change to the data ops layer is automatically propagated to all my applications. You know, this allows for faster time to value. Um, it allows for, you know, much more streamlined maintenance as the environment involves. And these are the problems that HiBite is working to solve. Hmm. You know, uh, it brought back memories when you talked about uh, Fahrenheit to uh, Celsius. Uh, you may remember back in, I wanted to say 99, the Mars Climate Orbiter crashed into the surface uh, because uh, a, a simple misinterpretation of what the actual, uh, I think, was the acceleration values were. Uh, they thought it was English units and ended up being metrics. So it's, uh, they could have used you way back then. Is, uh, is this another form of digital twin that you're talking about? So we would enable um, a, a digital twin. So, you know, we ourselves probably aren't going to go and create sort of the visual representation um, to be able to go and mimic, you know, a, a real world device. Um, because there are a lot of a lot of folks out there that are that are great at doing that sort of you know visualization and, and, and graphics intest, intensive processing. However, you know we see that we can actually go and populate those models, and perhaps by working and partnering with companies who are creating digital twins that may have their own say modeling schemas, we could automatically generate those on behalf of the user and just simplify configuration. Mm. You chose an interesting time to create this startup. Um, I guess you guys founded late 2018, as I remember. Uh, as you know, the World Economic Forum, I've mentioned several times in these podcasts, has kind of used the term the Great Reset, referring to the long-term impact of COVID-19 pandemic. What do you see as the impact of this reset, I guess, uh, generally on the future of industrial software, maybe more specifically on, on HiBite? Yeah, I know. COVID-19 uh, has actually been really interesting. You know, as you mentioned, we, we founded HiBite um, in August of 2018. Um, about a year later, we launched a beta program to get, you know, start getting customer feedback, discussions with partners going. And then we released our first product, the first version of the product at the end of this January. Um, and, you know, looking back when we founded the company, uh, we would never have guessed that today we'd be in the midst of a global pandemic so shortly after launching our first product into the market. You know, we, like many other companies, expected to travel, hit the trade show circuit, meet with partners and customer prospects. Um, and those plans just changed overnight. Um, our customer products were put on hold. 
Um, their priorities have shifted to keeping existing installations up and running with minimal staff. Um, and like any product in the manufacturing space that needs to run 24-7 and, and be reliable, you know, customers require time to evaluate, you know, our product in a lab setting, uh, then move it to a pilot phase. And then eventually, you know, if, if, if the solution actually meets their needs, roll it out over a period of time. And so COVID has put these timelines behind schedule. Um, it's impacted our customers getting real hands-on time with our offering. Um, that said, what I would say is the great reset is only putting more emphasis on being able to run, you know, all a company's plants from any location. Um, it's putting more emphasis on being able to run smarter and make predictions before failures occur. And so this is resulting um, in companies accelerating their digital transformation timelines, which involves the integration of these new applications with the old. Um, and of course, in turn, you know, that will increase the need to address the very problems that HiByte has set out to solve with its data ops technology. So we see it as an opportunity to kind of be there and, and help, you know, our customer base, you know, rapidly adopt and, and digitally transform, hopefully at faster rates than, than they had originally anticipated. Mm. I know you were part of some of the uh, CEO roundtables we put together shortly after the pandemic first hit and uh, the uh, uh, shelter in place orders were given in a lot of the geographies. And one of the themes we generally saw out of those roundtables was that at least early on, and it certainly has proven out during the time, um, our general investment thesis of remote access management or remote, excuse me, remote asset management has uh, has actually um, played out well in the sense, as you say, uh, you know, people are looking to remotely access, the, uh, operate, maintain their their equipment. And, uh, and, you know, obviously in a lot of cases, service personnel couldn't get out there. So, it, you know, where it has, you know, generally been uh, tough on the economy, um, at least a second sector of it, i.e. that this sector seems to be doing or benefiting from it as uh, crazy as it sounds, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in some absolutely. sense it's the fast, fast forwarding of, uh, if you will, the new normal. So um, what has been your largest hurdle um, in your entrepreneurial journey? Well, I want to stay away from COVID on this one. Obviously, that's been interesting, but you know, I, I'd, I'd say <laughs> that wasn't think, a leading question, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, actually, you know, I, I kind of looked back and said, okay, one of the largest hurdles that actually, you know, occurred for me, anyways, was actually at my last company, um, and it really had to do, um, interestingly enough, with you know the company outgrowing a particular senior leader on the team. Um, you know, this person, and I, I kind of mentioned them up above, was was instrumental in, in helping us get the company off the ground, um, you know, working with me on creating a, a, a wide range of device drivers uh, for that early um, stage HMI product, um, you know, and really helped us to move from startup phase to being able to generate enough revenue to self-sustain and grow the business. Um, you know, unfortunately, what happened is at some point we became a, you know, a certain size where more leadership was needed across the company. And I'd say both horizontally and vertically. And uh, this senior leader really struggled with that, you know, wanted to be involved in every decision um, and eventually became an impediment for others getting their work done. Um, you know, I had a strong relationship and friendship with that person. And, uh, you know, I really struggled with parting ways given the history with their company. Um, but it was a necessary decision to kind of move the company forward. And looking back at it, we ultimately became better, more well-rounded uh, because we created depth by giving people, you know, a longer leash to actually go and, and innovate um, and a better organization because of it. 
That's a that's an interesting one. As investors, we look a lot at the at the the makeup of the founding team, and and one of the first things we look for is the willingness to step aside at the right time. I.e., what got you to a seed funding or a Series A funding won't necessarily get you to the Series B funding. And uh, and even as a business ourselves at Momenta, we've we've had to go through the same types of things as well, right? You get the the builders, and then you get the I call it scalers, and then you get the maintainers, right? And and those are uh, generally they're different people, right? And different uh, mindsets and different abilities in that regard. So that's uh, quite astute. I, I guess, you know, I guess in turn, what what advice would you offer to aspiring entrepreneurs, you know, looking to emulate the uh, the Tony Payne school of uh, startup management? Well, you gave me a great leading with your, you know, sort of your feedback on my last answer. You know, I, I'd say, you know, there's really a few things. And the first is to, you know, look at problems in the market. Um, that you're really passionate about and are best positioned to solve, you know, because that's where you're really going to go and make a difference when you can live and breathe, you know, developing, you know, the best solution for a particular market problem. Um, people see you as sort of a domain expert, you know, it's, that's just a great place. It's a fun place to be. Um, you know, I'd say, you know, don't do it yourself, you know, sound, surround yourself with people who are smarter than you. Uh, and spend as much time asking questions, you know, as the, the leader, um, you know, then and learning, you know, rather than just doing so, you know, you don't need to solve every problem by yourself. Uh, and in many cases, someone else will probably have a better idea. Um, and then lastly, I would say, you know, and, you know, I think this is pretty common today is in, in sort of our fast paced agile world is if you're going to fail, fail quickly. Um, Figure out how to use that new knowledge that you gained and pivot as necessary to basically put yourself in a better position for success. Mm, agile. I think we all, exactly. all like to call it. So. Yeah. You know, what I what I also love about your background, um, and it was right in the bio, is uh, you're very well-rounded and the work you're doing in STEM, I really appreciate, i.e. giving back. Uh, they say the uh, the world or it's a, your life, your professional life is divided into three phases. There's the learning, earning, and returning phase. And I've found a subset of the people can figure out how to do both of those together. Uh, returning with return, I like to call it, which is uh, why I like to be in venture capital. But I like the fact that you're doing that already in your life. Um, tell me a bit about the work you're doing and, you know, some of the thoughts you've got relative to, you know, STEM education, especially in the U.S. Yeah, no, STEM is, is, is actually really important to me. And, and, you know, when I look back at my career, um, I, I really think, you know, I mean, I was actually lucky and fortunate to have, you know, started tinkering around with technology at a young age, kind of coming up with some ideas of what I really wanted to do in life before I actually mapped out my, my academic career. And, you know, when I look back to, you know, my time in school, I, I can't tell you how many times there were students that were in, you know, engineering classes um, where, you know, they really didn't know what they wanted to do after they graduated. They didn't really understand and, and you know, why they were taking some of the classes they were taking. And, you know, and so, you know, when I kind of, you know, got into, you know, um, you know, the workforce and started becoming a professional and got to the point where, you know, we were making enough money where we could start giving back. I, I tried to connect the dots and said, well, if, if, if we can get kids to get interested in technology and start thinking about some of the things that they want to do, then they'll have a much greater appreciation as they sort of get through their academic career and learn those hard, difficult topics for which everybody once in a while wants to say, why do I need to know this? Um, you know, hopefully they'll have more of an appreciation. And so, you know, what we did, um, you know, with with Kepware is um, we did a few things. We started sponsoring um, 
a, a local elementary school once a year, um, a $10,000 grant um, to the to the uh, class that would come up with a, a great way of, of taking technology and incorporating it into the classroom. And so, you know, we had some, you know, companies that basically was in, were in rural Maine that did not have, you know, computers. Um, they sometimes would go up to the middle school and, and get, you know, um, 15 to 20 minutes of computer time. Um, and many of the kids didn't have, you know, computers at home, given sort of the, the community that they, they lived in. And so we actually ended up basically sponsoring um, and basically, you know, providing them with a, a variety of laptops that they could use to actually incorporate into the classroom. There's been robotics and there's been other stories. But for me, when you go in and you basically, um, you know, go see those students, you know, months after they get access to whatever we help provide them and they can incorporate in the class and see how excited they are um, about going to school. Um, literally, I've had students basically say, you know, I used to hate coming to school and now I love it because I get access to, te you know, technology. I get access to the, you know, being able to, you know, play with robots and, and learn sort of how things actually work. Um, it's just, you know, it, it's great satisfaction. Um, and so I've kind of done that there. We've done it, you know, under, under the, you know, um, under scholarships and, um, you know, internships where we can get, you know, kids into the professional world before they graduate. So again, they can get that real hands-on experience. And, you know, I feel like, you know, if we can just turn a, a handful of people into better engineers, um, then we've done a great job for, for, uh, for the market. Yeah, excellent. What a great way to kind of pay back your own inspiration, but more importantly, kind of pay forward uh, the next generation of uh, uh, science and technology leaders uh, out there. So in closing, can you provide any recommendations of books or resources that, that inspire you? Yeah, actually. So I've, I've done quite a bit of reading lately, um, but one book that I've actually read um, is uh, Measure What Matters by John Doerr. And so um, John actually, the, you know, the author does a great job of introducing um, what's called an objective, objectives and key results system or short for OKR. Um, and what I'd say is, you know, objectives, you know, as you know, are concrete, they're action oriented, um, they're what really needs to be achieved. While the key results are the specific steps to meet those objectives, you know, they can, you know, they're measurable, they're quantifiable, they're verifiable. Um, and, you know, by leveraging OKRs, you know, a company can clearly articulate its goals and expectations to the entire organization. You know, if they can put them in a dashboard where people can access them on a daily basis, they know exactly what's the most important thing and how they fit into that big picture. And so we've actually begun leveraging this at Highbyte. Um, and we see it as a great tool uh, to get faster alignment as we grow and incorporate new people into the company. Uh, it's also been a great tool as we've kind of, you know, um, stood up a new board with some external representation to give them a better understanding of where we fit in the market and the things that we're trying to achieve. What a great recommendation. I actually had the honor of meeting John at Kleiner Perkins, oh God, probably 10 years ago. And uh, yeah, phenomenal personality, uh, certainly uh, uh, well-deserved in terms of the market attention he tends to get. And uh, and this book is uh, Measure What Matters is a great one in that regard. Well, Tony, thank you for this insightful interview. Yeah, you're, you're very welcome, Ken. You know, I really appreciate this opportunity to kind of, you know, talk about my background and, and, and share a little bit about what we're working on today. Yeah. So this has been Tony Payne, co-founder and CEO of Highbyte, a serial entrepreneur and digital industry leader. Thank you for listening and please join us next week for episode 104 of our Digital Industry Leadership Podcast Series produced by, for, and about digital industry leaders.
Thank you and have a great day. You've been listening to the Momenta Digital Leadership Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the discussions. And as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Please check our website at momenta.one for archived versions of prior podcasts, webinars, as well as resources to help with your digital industry journey. Thank you for listening.